This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. From England to the United States to New Zealand to Australia and back to the USA, that's been Dr. Nick Brennan's journey over the last 11 years. April 2021 finds Dr. Brennan assuming his new position as Associate Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. Nick was educated as a theoretical physicist in the United Kingdom, and he took his MA in Biblical Studies here at Westminster Seminary, California. He earned his PhD in New Zealand in New Testament. His dissertation was named Exceptional Doctoral Thesis at the University of Otago. Most recently, he's been teaching at Queensland Theological College, and before that, he taught at Grace Theological College in Auckland, New Zealand. He has also been an active churchman, and he is married to Inga, and together they have three children. Hi, Nick, and welcome to Office Hours. It's great to be with you, Scott. Well, we are excited about having you here at uh, Westminster, and you have had quite a journey. As it turns out, it's complicated to try to get to the U.S. during a COVID lockdown. That is true. Thankfully, I was able to leave Australia as a non-Australian, but uh, yes, it did take quite a while to sort out all the immigration stuff, but gladly I'm now here. Well, this is not the first time you've been here. You were here as a student, and before that, you were studying theoretical physics in the UK. So how does a nice theoretical physicist end up becoming a New Testament scholar? <laughs> Probably with difficulty. Um, I was studying physics at university, I think, having sort of worked out that uh, if you really wanted to understand things, physics was a pretty good way to go. But it was while I was at university that I became a Christian. And I think sort of during that time of becoming a Christian and having people in Christian ministry have quite an impact on me. That led me to kind of rethink where I was headed. I still enjoy physics and try to keep up a bit with what's going on in the world of physics and cosmology here and there. But really, it was a, a desire to kind of go into Christian ministry that led me to the study and, and into New Testament studies in particular. So you grew up in the UK. Where did you grow up and how did that influence you? I was born in London and then grew up sort of in and around there and grew up um, my dad's from Ireland and a good traditional Roman Catholic background as an Irishman. So I grew up going to a Roman Catholic church as a, as a child. But I think by the time I was a sort of teenager and I was allowed to make my own decisions about whether I was going to keep going to church or not, I was pretty a pretty convinced kind of agnostic at that stage and didn't go to church. And then it wasn't really until getting to university that really for the first time I think I heard someone explain the gospel and became a Christian while I was there. I mean, one thing that I'm very thankful for about my upbringing in terms of schooling is that in a lot of ways, I think the Lord graciously prepared me even then for later stuff because the kind of education I had as a child meant that I was learning Latin and Greek as a child and French and German. I think by the age of 10, I was learning all those languages. So that really helped in terms of going into New Testament studies where certain Greek and French and German are pretty much requisite for the discipline. So. so you had what would have been at one time regarded as a prep school education in the United States or mm -hmm. what's called in the UK a public school education. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So that's fantastic because that kind of background is 
difficult to find these days unless you're in a classical school setting. And even then, you're not very likely to necessarily learn a European language until you get to um, university. So how did you come into contact with Christianity at the university in the midst of a bunch of hard-headed materialistic scientists? It's quite interesting looking back that, and I was saying this to someone the other day, that in the hard sciences, there were actually quite a few Christians around in maths, in physics, in chemistry. I do think some of that is that sense that you are coming hard up against the nature of reality and that you're finding that there are deeply mysterious questions from a scientific point of view. Why it is that mathematics and certain portions of mathematics really engage with the physical world? Why does it seem that there is this rationality in creation, even at levels beyond you know, what we can perceive? So there are actually quite a few Christians. And my best friend in who was a student with me in physics was a Christian who I just happened to fall in with. And she invited me along to basically some meetings of Christian students, the Christian Union when I was at university, who in my first year were running a series of kind of talks and like a mission um, where they had talks in the lunchtimes, which were kind of apologetic, and then talks in the evenings, which were someone, a pastor, preaching expositionally and evangelistically through Mark's gospel. And so originally I got invited along to a talk that was about sort of science and Christianity and basically went along thinking that I was going to go and cause trouble and ask difficult questions. And really over the space of about four or five days, decided that I didn't know enough about Christianity to really attack things, that I should probably kind of know my enemy. And well over, I suppose, yeah, about four or five days of reading the Bible became a Christian. So I was fairly as surprised as anyone <laughs> that happened to me, <laughs> particularly when I'd gone along in the first place to basically try to cause trouble. Um, quite a roller coaster. Well, it is, and it's remarkable, and it happened in a very short window of time. Yes. So you start reading scripture. Where did you start? Because they were looking at Mark's gospel in these evening talks, I thought, well, I'll read Mark, and they had little copies of Mark's gospel available. And someone from a local church had offered, well, my friends had sort of connected me with someone who was uh, working with students in a local church to read some part of Mark's gospel with him. And it was quite funny because they were quite coy and quite afraid about pressuring me into doing this. But I was kind of gung-ho, yeah, I'll meet up with this chap and read the Bible, that's fine. And so he read Mark 2 with me about Jesus' healing of the paralytic there. And I can just remember being struck going back to my college dorm room and rereading it myself of how real and impressive Jesus was really in Mark 2 in the way that he, in a sense, stakes all his authority on his ability to heal this paralytic man and showing in what he physically does that he has the authority to be able to forgive this man's sins. And I just really from reading that, I just had that sense, I suppose we talk about it as the sort of the autopistic nature of scripture, its self-authenticating nature that I just somehow knew that this was true, you know, that Jesus was as he was being presented in Mark 2. And it was really strange in a way that I didn't have any doubt somehow that this was true. And the question simply was, was I going to respond to, to Jesus or not? Um, in some respects, I feel like I've then spent the whole rest of my life coming to terms intellectually with that and, in a sense, exploring and, you know, why trusting in Christ and why knowing that 
Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospels is real and true, why that's a rational thing to hold and why it's quite a reasonable thing to believe. But that wasn't how I became a Christian, which is rather strange considering kind of how I'm wired as a person and the kinds of things I was interested in. But I think it had something to do with God being at work. Yeah, something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a British way of putting it. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, you know, as a fellow who was raised outside the church and who, like you, came to the scriptures from the outside, I remember being deeply impressed with Jesus as he is presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew. And just as you said, I remember being deeply impressed by the fact that this fellow is not like any of the other people I had ever read. That I had almost immediately no doubt that he was who he said he was and that I had to make a choice, a profound choice. Either I was going to submit to this fellow and put my trust and confidence in him or I was not. You know, people say in the New Testament, this man teaches with a unique authority. This man uh, does things, says things like nobody else has ever done or said. And um, that is absolutely the case that uh, coming to it from the outside, it was very striking. I started reading uh, the Beatitudes. I said, Dad, where do I start with the Bible? He said, well, start with the Beatitudes. I said, where are the Beatitudes? He said, they're in the Gospel of Matthew. I said, what's the Gospel of Matthew? (laughs) So he hands me his Revised Standard Version, and I'm looking in the table of contents, and I found the Gospel of Matthew, and I start reading, and I get to chapter 5, and that's when I really remember being hit, you know, 5, 6, and 7, really impressed with his authority, his power, his grasp of reality and truth. Hmm. So you and I have similar experiences in that way. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think very much in terms of uh, Augustine's categories and Anselm's categories, faith-seeking understanding. I believe in order that I may understand. It's not either or, it's both and. Yes, absolutely. I think that's sort of something I kind of keep coming back to to try and remember that on the one hand, we certainly can rationally and with good reason discuss the Christian faith and explore it and present it to people as something that's not just sort of um, true for me in some vague subjective sense. And at the same time, often people come to faith without having wrestled through any or all of these kinds of questions, but simply because they hear the gospel, they meet Jesus in the pages of scripture and they're convinced of him. I think those are two things that are important to hold together. Well, that's right. I mean, objective truth is a real thing. And uh, yeah. you know, as you say, there is, you're, I think, making an allusion to this notion uh, or this phrase that people use, you know, I am speaking my truth. And that particular phrase I know has a, a very specific sort of meaning in a very specific context, but people do regularly talk about truth as if it were entirely subjective. And I regularly point out to people, well, to be sure, there is subjectivity in our knowing, but there are objective truths. And um, if you go to the top of Mount Palomar and you get to the very top, it's not you know a huge mountain, but it's 5,000 feet up. And if you get up to the top and were it possible, if you, you were to leap off of it, certain things would begin to take place. You know, you can identify as an eagle, but if you were to launch yourself off the top of Mount Palomar, right, there are certain yeah. things that inevitably are going to take place regardless yes. of your self-identity. Yes, reality would come home to you fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah, it, and as a physicist, you could probably tell us just exactly, <laughs> exactly. how quickly. Involved. <laughs> exactly. And at what rate of uh, speed that we would uh, come into contact with with reality once and for all. But there are a lot of people who are really struggling with that notion. 
of objective reality. So does your background as a scientist help you with that? Uh, I think to some extent. Um, I think the stronger forms of kind of postmodern relativity where people are saying, you know, that everything we encounter, all we're doing is just living inside our heads. We're just kind of constructing reality through our perception. You know, some of these might be fun ideas to throw around in a philosophical level, but I really don't see how any serious scientists can operate on the basis of those assumptions because we have to believe that at some level we are interacting with the world outside our heads as we measure or even as we theorize. And as you said, obviously, that our perceptions always involve a person perceiving, but we must be perceiving the world out there in some sense if we're doing real science. And so I think the way that scientists operate really can't fit with that kind of that hard form of relativism or that kind of living inside one's own head. We have to have access to the physical world out there, even if it's an access that, yes, is mediated by our mind and our senses. And But there are some quite good philosophers, I think, who've thought hard about these things. And I've, I've certainly appreciated some of the things I've read in the philosophy of science, like people like Michael Polanyi and others, um, who I think do some, some hard thinking about how to talk in a way that, yes, reasons with the fact of our subjectivity, but also makes it quite clear that we are connecting with the external world in sciences and describing reality. There are many important callings in this life. Physicians, nurses, police officers, and firefighters, they all save lives until Jesus returns. Everyone helped by a doctor, a nurse, a firefighter, or a police officer, however, will die. And then what? There is another calling that is vitally and eternally important, the ministry of the gospel. At Westminster Seminary, California, we've been educating men for pastoral ministry since 1980. Scripture says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's John six sixty six through 69 Jesus does have the words of eternal life, and he's commissioned his church and his ministers, his servants, to announce them to the world. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to pastoral ministry or to some other kind of service. We're grateful for your prayers and support as we seek to continue to fulfill our calling to help men and women fulfill their callings for Christ, His gospel, and His church. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Dr. Nick Brennan. He is our new associate professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. So you are a scholar of the New Testament. I have not yet had the privilege of reading your doctoral thesis, as it's called in the UK and I guess in uh, New Zealand as well. Tell us a little bit about your research. And as I understand it, you're getting ready to publish that. Is that right? Yes, yes. So it's with a publisher at the moment, and um, it will be published as part of the Library of New Testament Studies series with Bloomsbury TNT Clark. I don't know when that'll be at the moment, but at some point in the next year or so, I imagine. We will let the world know about it. Right? And we'll, have, we'll have you back in studio, and uh, we hope by that time we'll actually be able to be, as we like to say around here, right? 
face-to-face, and we'll talk to you about that. So anyway, tell us a little bit about your doctoral well, research. So I, I was working on um, the book of Hebrews. Um, I think I'd sort of grown increasingly fascinated with it as a book. And working in New Testament studies, there are some parts of the New Testament which have been sort of most hotly contested and written about a lot um, the area of the Gospels and of Paul have a lot of secondary literature. Hebrews, um, perhaps less so. There are some parts of the Hebrews in the Catholic epistles that have probably received less attention. And I think also as a student at Westminster, listening to Steve Ball had become quite interested in Hebrews and some of the, the covenantal thinking in it. And I, I sort of went in initially wanting to think about basically uh, some questions around the relation of Jesus as God to his humanity and his taking on of flesh in Hebrews. I then sort of quickly realized that although many scholars had kind of assumed that Hebrews had a, a high Christology that clearly taught that Jesus was God, that there was both another group of scholars, which was sort of a vocal minority that were trying to push back on this, but also that there were quite a lot of scholarship going on in a revival of Hebrews in the last 20 years that didn't seem to do very much with Jesus' divinity in Hebrews. It was there, but it didn't seem to function very much in the argument of the epistle. So I sort of quickly changed topic in a slight way to think about writing more broadly, both about the divinity of Jesus in Hebrews, but trying to do more to integrate it with reading the epistle. Again, part of that was kind of coming out of a patristic kind of conviction that in reading the Father's understanding the divinity of Jesus was always a question not only of whether, but of why. And that the Father's understanding of salvation always led them to strengthen and explain why it was that Jesus had to be both God and man. And so I think it was really through that lens that I went back to reading Hebrews and thinking about not just that Hebrews teaches that Jesus is God, but also shows how that has to be the case for him to be the kind of priest and saviour that he is in the letter. So that's really what the dissertation was about. Hebrews is an amazing epistle. As Dennis Johnson and Steve have said, quite probably a sermon, um, which is uh, communicated to us as an epistle. And I'm very excited about your work in Hebrews. And I know Steve Baugh is because he told me so, that uh, he's very excited about it. Because it's one of those parts of the New Testament to which people make appeal, but in a strange way, when it is an obviously important piece of the New Testament, gets overlooked. And yet, it's amazingly rich in terms of the way that we understand the history of salvation and the way that we understand, as you say, the deity of Christ, which is a really important argument for the uh, pastor or the author of Hebrews. So, why do you think that is, or am I wrong in thinking that Hebrews gets overlooked? Yeah, I think there are probably a couple of reasons. I mean, it is surprising when you look back particularly both from the point of view of Orthodox Christianity in general, but also as Protestants, because Hebrews played a quite important role, particularly in terms of chapter one in Christological debates in the fourth and fifth century, but also played a very important role in the 16th and 17th century in the development of covenant theology. So it obviously has played a very big role in the history of the church and in theology. I do think that there's a sense that because of the proportion of the New Testament that's written by Paul, that often Paul's thought has become sort of at the center of how we perceive and conceive of a lot of things. And that's good and proper. 
I think some of it is down to actually the world of academic New Testament studies, that the nature of higher criticism was often one of trying to get back behind the New Testament documents to construct the world of early Christianity. And that relied very much on understanding who had written various documents, when they had been written, why they had been written. And in that regard, Hebrews is something of an outlier to that kind of way of thinking, because we don't really know who wrote it. We don't exactly know when it was written or who it was written to. So it becomes less interesting to the person who's simply trying to reconstruct the world of early Christianity, because we don't really know its situation, its milieu. So I wonder if that's probably at least some of the reason it's been somewhat ignored. I think probably also in the modern world that some of its categories around priesthood and offerings and cult and things like that are quite strange and foreign to us. I mean, they shouldn't be if we're familiar with our Old Testaments, but to the extent that we get away from those biblical categories, I think Hebrews perhaps seems a bit more foreign, a bit more difficult of a world to get into. I like that explanation very much because, it, as you say, if you don't know your Old Testament or if you're unwilling to learn your Old Testament, then Hebrews really is going to seem like a strange book because the author of Hebrews is steeped in the Old Testament and builds his argument to his readership, which traditionally has been taken to be Christian Jews who are being tempted to go back to the types and shadows. And so he's making his case why they should not go back to the types and shadows and why they should stick with Jesus. But he makes his case out of the Old Testament and invokes those categories to say, listen, if you really understood who and what Moses was and is, if you really understood who and what Abraham was, and uh, understood the flow of redemptive history, you would not be looking away from Jesus, you would be holding on to Jesus. Yes, and the question of the structure of Hebrews has been one that's been quite well debated in the last 30 or so years. And one proposal, although I don't think it's quite right, but tries to analyze, I think this is maybe RT France or someone like that, tries to analyze the structure predominantly around the exploration and exposition of key Old Testament texts that move from one to the other. And in fact, if you look through, you could almost say, well, chapter one, there's this chain of Old Testament texts. He quotes chapter two, the use of Psalm 8, the beginning of chapter three, Numbers 12, the second half of chapter three into chapter four, Psalm 95, that there really are dominant Old Testament texts that he relies on and comments on through the sermon. Um, So I don't know that I would agree with that as exactly the way that the sermon is structured, but you can see as you read it that it's almost as if he has at least one or two key texts in mind at any one point that are informing the kinds of language he's choosing, the kinds of arguments he's making. It really is very much a sermon exposition of different Old Testament passages. And since for a lot of American Christians, the Old Testament is, to a certain degree, a lost resource. Yes, a foreign country. Yeah, exactly, a foreign country. Then to the degree that he's relying on a certain grasp of the Old Testament, it might make Hebrews even that much more difficult for Christians to grasp. I think it does. And at the same time, I think we could probably turn that around and say, what a wonderful invitation then Hebrews is to learning to read the Old Testament in a way that makes it clear why it's so important, how it points forward to Christ, how it impacts us as Christians. I mean, you know, the force of Hebrews is really all about 
this pastor wanting to convince people he knows and is writing to to keep going as Christians by setting out the work and person of Christ. I and mean, to do that, he is bringing out all these wonderful treasures from the Old Testament that point to Jesus, that illuminate who he is and what he's done. And so, in a sense, that the Old Testament as a whole might seem a very intimidating thing to get to know if you're not familiar with it. But Hebrews can kind of direct us to some of the big trajectories and ideas and help us to begin to understand how the Old Testament's put together and, and why it's important. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Listener, if you're looking for a way into the book of Hebrews, I might be so bold as to recommend the series that we did here on Office Hours a number of years ago, and we will link to that on the show notes for this episode. The faculty did an audio commentary on the book of Hebrews, and that might get you oriented and open it up a little bit for you, enable you to dive in and get to know Hebrews, and as Dr. Brennan says, through Hebrews, get to know your Old Testament. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dr. Nick Brennan, and we started this episode by talking about your journey, your journey from unbelief to belief, and your journey from the UK to the US to New Zealand to Australia and here. One of the things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is to give us a sense of what you experienced by way of the state of Christianity in those various places, so comparing the state of Christianity in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand with your experience in the US? Well, that's a very big question. Um, <laughs> I think one thing that you could, I mean, whether or not it's the best term to use, but the process of secularization or the process by which a country becomes more post-Christian, I think particularly living in New Zealand is often referred to as perhaps the most secular of the English-speaking countries. I think there's an interesting kind of dynamic that happens there where more and more people are just simply less and less aware of what it is that Christians believe and think, um, where being a Christian becomes an odder thing in society, um, as sort of a kind of a, something that people wonder about, don't understand about, find peculiar. I think that's quite different in a way to much of the United States. It may not seem that way to Americans. I think many Christians in America feel the way in which perhaps America is moving in a post-Christian direction. But coming in as an outsider, I think I can see that being a Christian is in some ways more acceptable, more known as a quantity. But I do think that brings challenges with it either way, whether it's a real ignorance about Christian things in a post-Christian context. Or here in America, the difficulty of trying to speak to people about the gospel when there's already a sense that, well, I kind of know about that and I know that it's not for me, or I kind of know about that, but it's not something that I think I need to deal with. I think there's so much in America that passes for the name of Christianity that is quite far from the Bible and quite far from the gospel. And so I do think here there's a particular challenge of trying to engage people who perhaps aren't Christians, but who already feel that they know that, they've dealt with that, they grew up in that, when in fact perhaps they haven't actually come into contact with the real thing. I think in some respect that was my experience in the UK growing up, that there was a lot of institutional Christianity that was really without the gospel and really without Christian convictions and Christian faith. And so trying to kind of talk to people in a way that shows and convinces them that there's more to this than perhaps you've already thought about, there's more than you've already experienced, and that they should encourage them to reconsider that. And I do think at the personal and popular level, 
I do really enjoy the way, as I talk to people in America, that many people are open to talking about these things. Um, perhaps it's easy to mistake the level of hostility that there is sometimes in the media or at the elite level to think that the average person on the street is equally hostile to Christian things. And, and they're really not always. And I've certainly enjoyed having opportunity to discuss things with people as I meet them in America who seem quite open to talking about Christian things. So those would be some of the differences. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.